This morning we want to continue our series on the schemes of Satan. Our text is Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, but we hope we can just move along smartly. And at the end of the hour, we'll be at our appointed destination and know a little bit more of the mind of God and be strengthened to ward off the enemy of the kingdom, and that is Satan himself. On November 19, 1966, Rabbi Harold Kushner was given the news that his only son, Aaron, would suffer and die from a rare disease that strikes only one in seven million. His son was only three years old at the time of the diagnosis. The disease, progeria, or the rapid aging disease. And on that very day, the rabbi looked heavenward and asked, the only question that could fill his mind, and it was this, if God exists, and if he's minimally fair, let alone loving and forgiving, how could he do this to me and to my innocent child? It was 11 years later, 1977, Aaron at age 14 died, and his father sought even harder for the answer to that question. When he thought he found it, he published it in a book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Almost sounds like he wrote it to you and me, doesn't it? In that book, he concluded that there was one of three answers to the reason why all had happened in his family. He said possibility number one is that in life, people get what they deserve from God, which makes God nothing more than a cruel despot. Or secondly, he said, perhaps God is cruel and allows people to get what they don't deserve, which reduces our Lord to nothing more than a cosmic sadist. Or possibly, he said, if those are not true, then number three, God is not all-powerful and thus can't prevent people from getting what they don't deserve. And thus he had made God nothing more than a consecrated weakling was many centuries ago that a great man in his own time, Job, faced even a deeper crisis than did Rabbi Kushner and his own family. For Satan had engaged Job in an unscheduled two-round buffeting bout. Job's family and wealth one day were taken completely, and shortly thereafter and close on the heels of that disaster, there came a loss of Job's physical health. And in Job 1 and 2 this morning, as we consider that great passage, I want you and I to see what Job concluded about God, his purposes in life, and why bad things sometimes happen to good people. As the book of Job opens, it gives us Job's credentials and tells us a little bit about Job's character which would be convincing for you and I to listen and to consider what it is Job has to say and how it was Job responded in those pressure and painful days that are far beyond most human imagination. The book begins by saying that there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. He was a righteous man. The character of his lifestyle was one that evidenced the presence of God wherever it was that he walked. Verse 2 tells us that he had seven sons and three daughters. And thus, not only did he walk with God, but he was also known as a family man. Now, I can't imagine with only two children in my own home what it would be like to have an additional eight running around. But the Job was quite a man to be able to handle that in such a great way. Maybe they did not know double-digit inflation back then. I'm not sure. Chapter 3 tells us on top of all of that that his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. He was a businessman and apparently had quite the ease and the capacity to take care of large numbers of livestock, I'm sure buying and selling. Job also was a community leader and a philanthropist, and thus was considered the greatest of all 
of the men of the east. In Job 29, and I'll turn there. You can just stay right where you are at the beginning. Let me read you just a portion of that that gives us an insight as to who Job was and what he did. In verses 7 to 11, it tells us a little bit about his involvement in the community. It says, When I went out to the gate of the city, and when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves, and the old men arose and stood. The princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to their palate. For when the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it gave witness unto me. Very prominent man in his society to whom the community looked up. Verses 12 and 13 tells us that he was a man with a tender heart, a philanthropist, a man of compassion, and one who was giving. It says, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the orphan who had no helper, the blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. Job is quite a man, as he's introduced to us in those opening verses. And beyond all of that, it tells us in verse 4 and 5 that Job was a spiritual leader in his home, very much concerned with the spiritual state of his children and that they would walk with God and bless Him day in and day out. For it tells us that he ministered unto them and that he offered burnt offerings to the number of them all at the end of verse 5. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, and thus Job did continually. And I would rather suppose if we did not know of the character of Job at all, but knew all that came upon him as chapter 1 and chapter 2 continued, we would never guess that it came on a man whose character was so pure and whose life was so right as is Job. Because to the human mind it would appear that Job had that that was unfair come upon him, that that he hadn't earned, and that that was undeserved. But as the chapters unfold, we discover that it's only through the schemes of Satan that all of it occurred as he attempted to totally discredit the testimony of one of God's great, great men. In verses 6 to 8, we discover the confidence that God had in Job as God commends Job to Satan as a righteous man on planet earth. It tells us in verse 6 that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Although Satan had morally fallen from the righteous character of God, he still had access to the physical presence of God. And we'll see more of that tonight and discover the moment of time when Satan was literally physically cast out of the realms of the heavenly. Verse 7, The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan responded and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Much as Peter warned the elders of his day in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he said, Your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And unbeknownst to Job, only hours and days later would he become the target of Satan's attack. Well, God responded to Satan in verse 8, and he asked him this question, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, for he's blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And my prayer for you and my prayer for me this morning would be if Satan were to ever walk into the presence of God, that God could say the very same thing about us as he did Job. Consider my servant and then fill in your name. One who right now on planet earth is righteous, walking in the ways of God, fearing God, and turning away from evil. God knew all about Job, and God knows all about you and me. The good things and the bad things. There's no height that we can climb. There's no depth to which we can descend to get away from the ever-present mind and eyes of God. But God's confidence 
did not exempt Job from Satan's challenge. We see that in verses 9 to 11. And Satan answered the Lord after his great commendation of Job and asked, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Lord, Job worships you for ulterior motives. It's not because of the worthiness of your righteous character, your blamelessness and your holiness, but rather he worships you for what he can get. He's got secondary motives, and they're not pure. And as a matter of fact, Lord, I really believe Job is a hypocrite. It's a danger that you and I face in the world in which we live, and particularly the country that God has blessed us to live in, that is enriched to such degrees that it would be beyond imagination to anybody who lived in history until the last 25 or 30 years. And Satan is using all of that, the blessing of God, to heap upon the back of Job and accuse him of sinful thinking and wrong motives. Which, by the way, is what Satan is in the business in heaven just even today and in this moment, standing before God, accusing the brethren. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. You can read about it also in the Old Testament in Zechariah 3 as he accused the nation of Israel of sin, attempting to find those areas of our lives that are not in harmony with the Word of God, or as we'll see in the life of Job, inventing lies about a man, hoping if the lie is told long enough and the life circumstances become bad enough that the mind of that person will buy the lie and thus live it out in abandoning the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. But in the midst of Satan's challenge, God wanted to affirm one thing. And I hope you'll note it very, very carefully as we read it in verse 12. And that is, God is on the throne. Make no mistake about it. Regardless of what will happen in our world, what we would read in our newspapers, Here on the evening news, read in the weekly tabloids, God is in control. Note what he says, verse 12. When the Lord said to Satan then, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. And so Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Note carefully that before Satan had any way in the life of Satan, he had to obtain God's permission. And then unless God had granted it, God would have continued to hedge Satan about, and so it is with you and me. Satan cannot lay a hand on the child of God, son and daughter of the king, until God would give permission unto it. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 32, Jesus looked at Simon Peter, and he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith would not fail, for when you've turned back, strengthen your brethren. And so it's been with the life of Job, and then with the life of Peter, men who have gone through the valleys of life and have walked through darkness that's unbelievable, endured pain beyond imagination, only so as they emerged at the end of the tunnel and light again was theirs in life, they might encourage you and me. How many of us have been encouraged by the life of Job? And in those dark moments, and perhaps those moments where it appeared that God had pulled the blind on life, And what had happened was beyond your understanding. We would retreat with tears in our eyes, barely able to read the print on the page, but to find one like us who had traveled the same way, only to know that God had loved and delivered him, and come to those wonderful verses in chapter 42, in which Job again acknowledges the sovereignty and the wonder 
of Almighty God. And so it was with Peter and the brethren. And so it would be with you and me today if Satan even in this moment would be sifting us as wheat like he did Peter. Only that you might be strengthened in Christ praying that we would not fail, that as we come out, we might be strong and strengthen the brethren that are around us. Not only did he have to have God's permission, but God also placed limitations on the things that Satan could do to Job. For God tells him, all that he has is in your power, that is what he owns, but do not put forth your hand on him. Touch not Job in a personal way, Satan. Third thing I want you to note, and maybe most importantly out of it all, if you've got nothing else out of what we said this morning, note this very, very carefully, that righteousness in Christ does not provide immunity to believers from Satan's personal attacks. Righteousness in and of itself will never exempt you and me from the attacks of Satan. And Job will forever stand as the great, great example of that. Corollary thought that I would add, just as a way of preparing our minds for what we'll see, and that is that material blessing in this life is not necessarily an indication of God's blessing for righteous living either. Let me say that one more time. Make sure you write it down. Note it very, very carefully. And that is personal holiness or righteousness will not necessarily bring material wealth and ease of life as a reward in the here and now for walking in the ways of God. That's reserved and promised for all of eternity. Even Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 46, that God causes the sun to arise on both the good and the evil. And He causes the rain to rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. It's a very dangerous movement in America, theologically speaking, that subtly promotes the very thing that Satan says motivates Job. It's called the gospel of the good life, or the gospel of prosperity, the theology of wealth, the theology of middle-class American materialism. And it says this, that God wills the prosperity of every one of His children. And therefore, for a Christian to be in poverty is to be outside God's intended will. It's to be living a Satan-defeated life. Because we're God's children, that is, the king's kids, as some would put it, we should always go first class. That is, instead of small and second-rate, it should always be the biggest and the best. A Cadillac instead of a Volkswagen. Diamonds and all of the rest, because this alone brings glory to God. What a tragic contradiction to the truth of the cross of Calvary for the King of kings and Lord of lords, instead of wearing a crown of splendor, was bloodstained by that crown of thorns that dug into his brow. And he who should have been robed in all of the clothes of righteousness was stripped naked and there nailed to a cross to the abject horror of all those who viewed the most despicable death that the world then knew, one whose life would be taken in a moment of time by the sword thrust of a Roman soldier whom Christ came to save. Wealth, my friends, was never promised in the atonement, and in this life is never given as a guarantee to believers and will never be found as evidence of the highest order of the fact that you're walking in the ways of God. Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, perhaps, are the best known and the leading adherents of the name it and claim it theology that's sweeping our country. And John wanted me to warn you about that theology 
both from our contemporary scene and from the Word of God. In her book, God's Will is Prosperity, Gloria Copeland writes this on pages 25 and 26. And I quote her, Isaiah 119 says, If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. The word willing has become a passive word in our thinking, says Gloria. Actually, in this scripture, it's an action word. It involves a decision. If I said I'm willing to live in divine health, I wouldn't just mean, well, if somebody slaps it on me, I'll live in it. No, if I'm willing, I've made up my mind to live that way. And I've determined I will live in divine health. I'm not willing to be sick. If you make up your mind, make a quality decision that you're not willing to live in lack, but that you're willing to live in divine prosperity and abundance. That that Satan cannot stop. Redemption from the curse of poverty is a part of Jesus' substitutionary work at Calvary. He paid the price for my prosperity, a heavy price, and I will not scorn any part of His work. I deeply appreciate every benefit that His sacrifice provided for me." Unquote. There could be nothing further from the truth. Christ died not for our poverty, but for our sins. And Christ was not made into an eternal checkbook at Calvary. He was made sin, that He might die for you, and that He might die for me. That kind of thinking, when embraced and then used as we walk through life, brings nothing but utter despair when the promised outcome does not appear. And we receive letters weekly in response to the tapes and radios here at Grace Church from people who have written and said, John, we've heard your broadcast, and we've revitalized our ways, and we're now walking according to the Word of God. But quite frankly, things have got worse, and my financial conditions have not improved. We got one recently, a fellow who had heard the tapes on family feuding, got his life in order, brought his wife home out of the work world to stay with their little child. And he said, I did just what you said God wanted me to do. But today I'm more in debt, and quite frankly, I hate God. And that's what poor theology will do. If you buy it, it will take you away from God rather than bringing you unto Him and causing Him to be your rock and your Redeemer in the day when the lights go out and the bottom seems to have fallen out of your life. It's about the time that we got that letter here at the church that B and I got a letter from some dear friends who are missionaries in Indonesia. And they're in a rather primitive part of that country. And I just read you a portion of the letter. Carl and Karen write, Back in September, all the conditions were right. I was coming home a day early because gasoline was short up country, making it impossible to visit the Pangkalan Suka. The rivers were so low the boats couldn't bring the drums of fuel inland, and a light shower had beat me to the river, but it had never stopped us before. It did this time. I slipped, striking my arm on the seat of the motorcycle, which lifted it above my head in a most unnatural position, and presto, a shoulder dislocation. It was so easily done, I thought if we played that picture backwards, I would be back in shape again. You can imagine what was going through his mind at the time. But we found it wasn't as easy as all that, and after an hour of pain and fruitless effort, we decided I would have to be taken downriver to the city of Ketapang. We arrived around 3.30 a.m. in the morning after around a 15-hour cruise. Can you imagine that? Nearest hospital, 15 hours by canoe. It's a shame so much of it was in the dark because I managed to stay awake the whole time. No wonder. Within an hour after arrival, I was put back together again. And since there was nobody I knew in that city to give me a lift home, which was 50 miles away, I left that same morning on my own bike. I'm sure the trip did not add to the healing process, but it was nice to be home again. You know, the testimony of Carl and Karen has been that of the saints down through the years, those that have suffered and been slain for the advance of the kingdom. And quite frankly, wealth and prosperity has rarely been known in a general way to be associated with Christianity at all.
And thus, even more blasphemous is the claim that Christ became poor and left the magnificent treasures of heaven to be involved in the poverty of a sinful world that you and I could be rich in Him. Let's go back to our text and find out what it was that Satan did to Job in an attempt to infiltrate his mind and cause him to reverse his priorities in life. And I think you'll be able to identify with it in large part as our nation in this last year with the airline crashes, with the cold that's sweeping the east and all of the fires that swept the west, all of the sudden unexpected tragedy. I think maybe you'll be able to identify a little bit with Job as we pick him up in verse 13. It says now that it happened on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house that a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. And they also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Tragedy struck. Messenger number one arrived only to say that the oxen and the donkeys and a portion of your servants are gone, and I alone have escaped to tell you, Job, of the bad news. And I suppose if we stopped there, it would have just been a bad day for Job. But a second messenger appears on the scene, verse 16. While the first was still speaking, the other came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants, consumed them all, and I alone have escaped to tell you. It's a story of a bad day that got worse, and the worst is yet to come. For no sooner had the words been uttered from the second messenger's mouth till a third appeared, verse 17. And it says that while the second was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, took them, slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you the bad news. But I'm sure had the story stopped, if Job somehow could have prevented the momentum of Satan's destructive hand upon his life, would have been thrilled if the fourth messenger had not appeared. And he would have been delighted to have lost his livestock, a great portion of his livelihood, and his servants. But the bad day became utter tragedy, and we read it in verses 18 to 19. While the third messenger was still speaking, the fourth came, and he said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Maybe some of you have gone through the tragedy of arriving home and perhaps discovering your home was burnt to the ground, or perhaps had been broken into, destroyed, all your possessions taken. Or maybe you received that unexpected telephone call late one night that told of a loved one, perhaps even one that was as close as a husband or a wife or of children. Fireman stopped me in the hall after the first service, and he said, you know, my mind again thought of Job as you spoke this morning. He was out on a call. Apparently there was an apartment building in Hollywood that burned down, and there was a young mother and a child that died in the fire. Tragedy that strikes, apparently, the undeserved and unexpectedly, but that's a portion of life in a cursed world, a world that's filled with sin, and a world in which Satan roams wanting to devour whomever he can find. But I'm not so much interested in the conflict of Job, which we've just read, as I am in the conquest of Job that we read about in verses 20 to 22. And I want you to watch very carefully the response of Job to those painful, painful moments. For it says in verse 20 that Job arose and he tore his robe and shaved his head. And he first responded like you and I would with that news, and that is with woe 
and with sadness and with tears in his eyes. He was a real person. He was built with the emotions that you and I have of tragedy and of tears. But his next response is that to be marked. And in the midst of the tears, it says he fell to the ground and he worshiped God. It's an incredible response. But he fell to the ground and in that falling and prostrating himself before a holy God, he acknowledged outwardly by the posture he took that, Lord, you're the master and I'm but a steward. You own it all. You've only allowed me to use it. Then he uttered these great, great words in verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, and blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He knew the truth of Psalm 50, verse 12, where God said, the world is mine and all that it contains. Job refused to yield in the face of Satan's pressure tactics, that that prosperity would bring. C.S. Lewis, in his Screwtape letters, puts these words in the mouth of Uncle Screwtape to Nephew Wormwood. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while really it's finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing an agreeable work, build up in him a sense of being really at home and earth, which is just what we want. And those diabolical thoughts that Uncle Screwtape sent to his nephew are those very thoughts that Satan is attempting to build in to the mind of Job so that Job can be a self-fulfilling prophecy to those things of which Satan had accused Job in heaven. But Job was the victor. And I want you to note very, very carefully, <clears throat> it wasn't that Satan's blows missed the mark, for they hit Job exactly where they were aimed. They brought great pain and tragedy and no doubt questions to his mind. But when it was all over, he bowed down, he worshipped. He did not sin with his mouth, nor he blamed not God. Before we look just briefly at chapter 2, the second of Satan's two-punch attack, let's note a couple of things that you and I ought to take away with us. Number one is that Satan attacks even the strongest of believers and the holiest of those that are in Christ. No matter how strong you are today or how righteous would be your lifestyle, you'll not be immune from the attacks of Satan. Satan's attempts will be to discredit our testimony. And that is to cause us to turn our back on God and not only ask those questions, but follow them to their logical end and embrace their devilish conclusions. But be comforted. God allowed the attack. God controlled the attack. And God truly found out that His confidence in Job had been well won. For it's only through the press of life and the trauma of tragedy that what really lives in you and me will ever be brought out to be seen by the world. Someone once said, if you desire to be a skillful mariner, you'll not learn how in a calm sea. It's much like a tea bag. You'll never find out what Lipton put in it until you put it in the hot water. And quite frankly, we'll never know what's really inside of us until we walk through the valley and the deep water and through darkness when there's apparently no light at the end. And the fog that's so thick we can hardly read the instrument panel. But it was there that Job walked 
And it was there at the end that he bowed down and he worshipped God. But note this about Satan. He is a persistent rascal. And he will not give up. And if one thing does not work, he will try another. And so it is as we come to chapter 2, which is really all of one portion of Scripture, that there came another day when the sons of God came before the Lord and Satan was among them. And the Lord asked him again, from where do you come? And he said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around in it. And God once again renews his confidence in Job. And he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, that the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him. He's blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And then he adds, knowing this from Job's response, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And God is reminding Job of those days before. Nothing in Job's life to cause the hand of God to come down in, in chastisement or punishment, but only to prove his true nature, Job, or Satan, did I allow you to do that to Job, and all that you said proved false. But Satan's not for a loss of words, and in verses 4 and 5, we will see his relentless challenge. And he responded, well, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he'll give for his life. And Lord, I think, quite frankly, Job just relinquished his family and his wealth just to get me off his back so I wouldn't touch his body. However, he says in verse 5, Put forth thy hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. God, you touch his body, and he'll curse you and turn his back on you, and walk in ways that you never commanded. What a challenge. And you ought to note very carefully that what Satan is subtly suggesting here is that physical discomfort and physical problems that come our way, whether they're at the hand of Satan or a sinful world, are always more severe than material discomfort and more dangerous and more likely to turn us away from a right relationship with God. Well, let's see what happens in verse 6 as God reaffirms His control, that that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 12. And it tells us this in verse 6 of the second chapter. The Lord responded to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Again, by God's permission, only spare his life. Again, with God's limitations. That is, Satan, you could do anything you want with his life, but don't take it. You must stop short of death. Well, the conditions were clearly spelled out for Satan, and he was obedient to the commands of God. And thus, in verses 7 and following, Job resumes his painful conflict with Satan. And it tells us in verse 7 that Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And the intent of the text is to tell you and me it was not just a little rash that broke out on his hand that a little Desinex or Johnson's baby powder would cure up overnight. I mean, this was the real thing. Top of his head to the bottom of his soles, it was so severe and so agonizing, it says in verse 8, that he took a broken piece of pottery. And you can imagine taking a, one of our little clay pots here in Southern California, throwing it on the ground, and then taking a sharp piece and beginning to scrape your entire body with it while he was sitting among the ashes in woe. I mean, it is a dismal time for Job. So dismal that throughout the book of Job, we get little hints of the severity of the illness. Now the last hour tried to turn with me, and they failed miserably. There were about three texts behind me. So you just listen, but I want to tell you a little bit that was involved in this skin rash, the sore boils, 
that Satan brought upon Job. In chapter 2, verse 13, it says, The pain was so great that when his friends came, they could not speak to him for one whole week, seven days. Such a pitiful sight was Job. Chapter 3, verse 24 says that the pain was so great that he groaned at the sight of food, and he cried tears like gushing torrents of water. Chapter 7, verse 5, it says that there were worms and dirt in his wounds, and that fluid ran out all over his body. In verse 14 of the same chapter, it was so bad that Job was hallucinating in and out of complete consciousness, which, by the way, might explain in part at least some of the comments that Job made in the ensuing chapters, from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 37, where he began to doubt the rightness of him even living. It says in chapter 13, verse 28, that he was decaying like a rotten thing. He was a living dead man. Chapter 16, verse 8, he was shriveling up. Chapter 16, verse 16, there was deep darkness under his eyes. Chapter 19, verse 17, he had an incredible case of halitosis, which oftentimes marks severe illness and well on its way to death. Chapter 30, verse 18, there was unrelenting pain 24 hours a day. Chapter 30, verse 30, his skin had turned black and he lived with a raging fever. In chapter 33, verse 21, there was such a dramatic weight loss. He became so emaciated because he couldn't eat that his bones protruded out all over him and he was just a horrible sight to look upon. That was Job, a righteous man who did no evil and who had survived in such a wonderful way, the initial onslaught of Satan. Satan was wanting Job to say in his mind, Lord, if this is the way you're going to treat me, then I'll turn my back upon you and curse your face. But you know today, and we've not got the time to go into it, and I can only invite you to get the tapes that John and I have done on divine healing and the charismatic movement, there is a worldwide movement that says there is healing today and in its completeness in the atonement. And if you today are walking through life with anything but full health, then you're living the faithless life. You're not fully believing the promises of God. And if there's anything in life that ever makes me angry, and I try to stay unangry and calm and peaceful, it's that kind of theology that would lead so many dear, dear folks that are suffering from physical problems into a totally wrong picture of a loving, heavenly Father who one day will redeem all of our bodies and give us health as we've never known it as we live with Him for all eternity in Jesus Christ in a world that knows nothing of sin and the curse that's upon the world today. But you know, if you've talked with many who have gone to healing services in expectation of God touching them, or those that have tried to screw up their faith and muster up their courage and believe all they could and remain in the condition they're in, they so often are wanting to conclude either there is no God or else He would have done something to me, or God's not interested in me because if He was, He surely would have healed me. Or maybe there's something in my life that can't be changed. And nothing could be further for the truth. For God is, was, has been, and always shall be. He's eternal. And God certainly does have the power to reach down and heal. But it'll be according to His will and His revealed Word. Not our human desires and the mystery taught lies of those who are in error. And there is nothing so bad in your life and mine that new life in Jesus Christ cannot cure. There's nothing in us, if we're willing to forsake and come to Christ, that will ever prevent God from failing to reach out His arms and wrap them around us as we confess that we're sinners and in need of a Savior, and say, welcome home, son, 
and welcome home daughter. Some of the greatest saints throughout all of the church have been sick. Some of the great, great hymns that we sing, Fanny Crosby is one of my favorite songwriters, blind from an infant, wonderful testimonies of worship, the grace and the goodness and the holiness of God. Some of the great saints in the Bible were sick and died, among them Isaac, Jacob, Elisha, Ahijah, Paul was ill, Timothy was ill, Trophimus was ill, Epaphroditus was ill. And I guess if we added up, everybody who ever lived in the Bible did what? Died. For that's what Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And it's quite frankly what you do with Christ in the here and now that will determine for all eternity whether you live in the wealth of heaven or the poverty of hell, and whether you live in the health that only Jesus Christ can bring, or whether you live in the weakness and the conscious torment with Satan. And we'll see more about that tonight. Well, all of this was upon Job, but we discover that Job was a conqueror. But before he could conquer, Satan says, I've got one more little trick I want to try. And Job, if I can't get to you, I'm going to get to your wife. And up to this point, we've not seen Job's wife. But I'm sure she was severely affected by the loss of their livestock. And no doubt, as any mother would, the loss of ten children in one day would have brought great anguish. And when she lost her husband, all she could say, and we find it in verse 9, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. The very thing that Job had worked so hard to prevent in his children, and the very thing that Satan said would occur, came tumbling forth from the lips of his wife. The point I want to make is this, for those of you that are married, and for those of you that are thinking about getting married, I guess we just did this whole thing for Ben, huh? As he's anticipating marriage. Is God's design is one flesh that will never yield to the dividing knife of Satan. And we saw the disaster it brought in Genesis chapter 3. God divided, or Satan divided, Adam and Eve. And Eve was deceived, Adam was blatantly disobedient, and the tragedy still lives on in human history. And Satan again wields his knife, and he's attempting to divide husband and wife. And Mrs. Job has succumbed to the pressure and to the pain. But men, note very, very carefully how Job handled the circumstances. He had purposed in his heart, no doubt years before, to be the spiritual leader in his family and to be strength and the sustaining power for both wife and for his children. And thus, I'm sure in the most loving, tender way that he could, he says in verse 10, Hun, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And I am assuming, as I kind of read the white spaces between the lines, that he led his own wife in the way of victory. And that she, in all likelihood, stopped and considered the way of her words and said, you know, I'm wrong. And thank you for loving me enough to give me those words of chastisement with the deepest love you know how, Job, and drawing me back to be your helpmate, that we might be that one flesh that God intended us to be so we would not fall victim to the lies of Satan. And throughout it all, Job did not sin with his lips. With those wonderful words, shall we indeed accept good from God and not also accept adversity? Now Job is saying, God owes us nothing. 
And if adversity comes our way, that's fine. I'll still praise God. If blessing comes my way, that's great. And I'll still praise God. And thus, the mindset or the scheme of materialism met its match in Job. He did not buy it. He rejected it. And in so doing, became a great, great saint that's highly revered in the Word of God. Let me give you that mindset. And it's what Satan would have you and me to believe today. And it goes like this. I prize material and physical blessings more highly than my spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I would never think that. I hope you would never think that. I hope I would never think that. But you know, we'll never know until the ultimate test comes and we find ourselves in the midst of tragedy and we lose some of our possessions or a portion of our family or lose our health. And then we'll discover our response to God and find if our mind has been framed by the Word of God and we're standing firm, wielding the sword of the Spirit, or whether we ourselves were fooled most of all in knowing what the Word of God teaches, but not really strengthening our hearts and our minds in it. Memorize this verse. It will guard you against those thoughts that Satan would love to plant in your mind. They're from the lips of our Lord. And he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then He will add all of these things according to God's will, food and clothing, in the context of Matthew 6.33, that He deems that you and I would need to be all that God wants us to be, to walk in His way and to be equipped to do His work on planet Earth. James is spoken of in James chapter 5, verses 10 to 11. Some wonderful words. Let me read them to you. James says, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. For behold, we count those blessed who have endured. For you've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and the Lord is certainly merciful. You know, I wish Rabbi Kushner could have read the book of Job and pondered what it said and read the words of James. And had he fully understood the person of God and the wonder of Jesus Christ, he never would have concluded that God is a cruel despot and has brought upon the people of the world and his son in particular what they deserved or possibly that God was a cosmic sadist and brought it upon people even though they didn't deserve it, or a consecrated weakling and could not even prevent it from coming, but rather would have discovered, as did Job, that God was a conquering king who sits this very day on his throne. For in chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, with the tragedies behind and a four-chapter dialogue with God fresh in his mind, Job uttered these words, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye sees thee and all of thy glory, and therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. And Job says all of the questions I asked in the midst of my friends, and all of those foolish things that I said, he says, I take them all back because in the midst of life as you revealed yourself, Lord, I now see who you are and understand the wonders of your grace and the brightness of the eternal hope of heaven and the light that's at the end of life in Jesus Christ. I close with this story. I read it just recently, and it's so well illustrated, the life experience of Job and that of you and me. Were we to endure that that was Job's in life? It's the story of an American officer in the Flying Corps in earlier days 
who was flying across the ocean alone and looked out on the horizon, and in the horizon saw a coming rapid storm that was blacker than midnight. He said the black inky clouds seemed to be coming on with lightning rapidity. I knew I could not reach shore ahead of the storm. I looked down to the ocean to see if I could go underneath it and perhaps alight on the sea, but the ocean was already boiling over. Knowing that the only thing to do was to rise above it, I turned my frail craft straight up towards the sky, and I let her mount, and then the storm struck me with all of its fury. It was a hurricane and a cyclone and a typhoon all in one. The sky around me became black as midnight. I could not see a thing. Rain came in torrents, the snow began to fly, and the hail struck like bullets. But when I climbed to 6,500 feet, then suddenly I was swept out into the sunlight in glory such as I never saw in this world before. The clouds were below me. The sapphire sky was bending low above me in amazing splendor. And it seemed the glory of another world. And I immediately began to repeat Scripture to myself. And in the heavens above the clouds, I worshiped God. And as it was with Job, and as it was with the aviator, so it is with you and me. As the storm comes and life would give us no detour, the only way to go and the only way to look is up. And it's only when we've broken through the dark clouds will you and I be suddenly introduced to the glory and the magnificence and the splendor of a holy God who revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ when he shed his precious blood on Calvary so that we sinners in the midst of life's storm might find relief when we, like Job and the aviator, choose to look up. Let's bow and pray together. Father, this morning's message from the life of Job is sobering. Because that's life. We read about it day in and day out. We know people who have been struck with tragedy, and even some of us know firsthand the bitter taste of pain and loss. And Father, never for a moment would we blame you. But we, like Job, would bow down and worship and know that truly naked we've come and naked we'll go. And why should we accept good and not also adversity? Lord, for those that are in the midst of those kinds of circumstances, even now, I pray. And pray that the victory of Job would be theirs through the questions, through the tears, through the trauma they might see the shadow of Jesus Christ and all of His love and all of Your grace and mercy. And for those of us that might even now be walking somewhat trouble-free, Father, prepare our minds and hearts if that day were to come that we, like Job, would be able to worship and to resist sinning with our mouth and Blaming you. And just before we close, my friend, I might just add that that response to life, which seems so supernatural, in fact really is and can only be brought about through the Spirit of God living within us that comes through Jesus Christ. If you've never invited Him to be Savior and Lord of your life, that of which Job knew and that of which we've talked this morning will not be your experience. And even more important than that, when that day comes in which your future eternity would be decided forever, you'll not know that that Christians look for and long for and hope for. And perhaps God has brought pain and tragedy into your life only to cause you to look up and to seek the God of heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He sent to die for the sins of the world. If you're unsure of your future, unsure of heaven, unsure of 
the one true relationship with the living God, even while you sit and your head bowed, I would invite you to confess your sins and to invite the Lord Jesus Christ to come live within your heart that you too might be a trophy of His grace. Father, You know our needs and our lives individually. We commit them to You. And I pray that Your blessing would be upon us and that we would walk in Your way and live according to Your will, only that all of the glory might be Yours forever and ever. And we would ask it in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.